Welcome to the 403 Forbidden Podcast. In this episode, our lovely curators, Eula5, will talk about claiming ownership, digital identity, and the nuances of algorithmic biases. 403 Forbidden is a digital exhibition that explores the way identity and ownership are maintained and negotiated in digital spaces. At the apex of the digital revolution, we have become experts at building and curating our online identity, which transcends our physical limitations. As we carefully navigate sensibilities of taste and content, form, judgments, and learn from immaterial interactions with one another, we establish our critical consciousness. This agency is a rite of passage. It draws us closer to our two-dimensional avatars and allows us to see beyond the scope of their purely representational function. They are us and we are them. And we are Eula Collective. The overarching theme of our exhibition is ownership online. Hi, I'm Kalina. Hi, I'm Neo. Hi, I'm Razia. Hi, I'm Candid. And I'm Nama. As we've kind of began to talk about, algorithms are very obviously not neutral. Um, and a scholar who looks at this is Joy Bulamini, who's a Ghanaian-American computer science and digital activist who's based at MIT Media Labs. She looks at the reinforcement and reproducibility of racial biases in algorithms, very closely looking at how um, these algorithms reinforce stereotypes with very real-world consequences for people. Very interestingly, she coined this term called power shadow, which I think is very useful to bring into the conversation here. Power shadow describes intentional inclusivity in digital algorithm creation. Uh, Joy argues that we aren't intentional about being inclusive. We will reinforce pre-existing inequalities, inequities, racism, and biases, Candid, that you were talking about. Is the, is the power shadow like kind of the shadow ban that so often certain, you know, uh, people with following get, uh, you know, shadow banned for posting something controversial or something that doesn't necessarily serve the right agenda, if you know what I mean. <laughs> right. I actually, I don't know. It could refer to that. And that's maybe where the term that she, she coined to mean uh, inclusive digital algor- algorithm creation. Yeah. It could rely on free speech, I guess, if that's what you're referring yeah. to. Or maybe it's, you know, the response to shadow ban that, you know, people who are unjustly suffering from it can, can you know, respond with power. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Interesting. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, and, you know, the, this, this issue of algorithmic biases, or I guess biases in general, isn't new to the digital age. As mentioned earlier, Dr. Noble is a professor in information studies. And she also holds a PhD in library and information sciences. So as she notes in her book, like those two fields have their own issues of problematic representations and biases in classifications and misclassifications. Some are more vulnerable to this than others. So um, she mentions Asian Americans, Jewish people, Roma people, essentially anyone who's been othered uh, through the Library of Congress subject headings or through the Dewey Decimal System. Um, this is similar to what our professor for this curatorial course, um, Andrea Fatona, uh, mentioned in one of our lectures, um, and that how in the curatorial text, many of the archives of Black artworks here in Canada are not well categorized or maintained. This is important to know because as I've learned um, during my communications degree 
indexing, cataloging, all of that are precursors to search engines and the internet as we know them today. Of course, there are other examples of algorithmic biases besides Google. Um, Twitter, for instance, recently came under fire because their photo preview algorithm favored white faces. Uh, YouTube, you know, we, we've heard about how the, the whole stories of how, you know, the recommendations that YouTube was giving was solely radicalizing youth, especially white youth, um, with far right and white nationalist content and conspiracy theories. Um, I don't know if any of you heard of The Social Dilemma, which was that Netflix documentary um, that, you know, people were raving about on the dangers of social media. And I guess one of my, you know, one of the things that I found kind of unfortunate with that movie is that I feel like it didn't really address this topic because these kinds of biases have real world implications. And mm -hmm. Readings talks about that. Um, it was a podcast it was titled uh, Digital Justice from the BBC series New Ways of Seeing. And they had a segment on how machine learning and artificial intelligence were being used in law enforcement in the UK and how it disproportionately impacted marginalized communities. And we, we saw similar cases in the US and it, this was also mentioned in Dr. Noble's book because of technology developed by the for-profit company Northpoint. Yeah, absolutely. We can look at, begin to look at the individuals who are writing these algorithms that can, then get deployed, who are subconsciously and consciously uh, writing it within their own biases. And they may not realize this. It may be a subconscious thing. But if, as Kalina mentioned, I believe earlier, if you look at Silicon Valley, a very obvious example, the individuals writing the code are predominantly male and they're predominantly white. So, of course, they're going to ingrain into the code certain social, racial, religious biases, even if they do not see it for themselves and even if these biases are subconscious biases. So, again, nothing is neutral, nothing is democratic, and even online, and even if the online does provide greater democratic opportunities for engagement like we spoke about, it's, it's neutral. Yeah, I, I mean... I think many people are starting to come uh, to the into this realization of the power imbalance that uh, is blatantly on display through you know this pandemic specifically. I I, I read these like very interest this very interesting book. It's called the Xenofeminist Manifesto. It's all about you know how women shouldn't be equated to nature because that just reinforces uh, oppression. Uh, I mean you know obviously. A, a big part of the population, whether, you know, knowingly or unknowingly, don't necessarily treat the environment kindly. Um, and the core of the tension is very much uh, the cis white male ownership of technology uh, for, for the xenofeminists uh, and the unawareness of how to use that technology to address real world problems or important problems such as poverty or illness or is just something that these these people who are creating this have you know, likely, uh, more often than not, no, no conception or understanding of what it is to empirically have that experience. So there is so much potential in technology uh, for problem solving, but there isn't a vision uh, behind it and it's monopolized. Yeah, I think there's a huge part of technology that we haven't tapped into um, because the there are so many people who potentially could contribute to the writing of algorithms, the writing of code, program creation, etc., um, that aren't well represented in the tech industry and could bring new perspectives and new ideas into a very heteronormative um, kind of workplace or workforce. And I think there's definitely untapped potential for tech, 
specifically in algorithms um, that may not be realized as of yet. Algorithms can decide if someone um, gets a mortgage, how long their jail sentence might be, which communities are more policed than others, how much we even pay for items online can be different. And we need to begin to think about the decisions that are being made for us, about us, by algorithms and corporations in a very, very real way. Algorithms are not just, you know, something flying in the sky that we can't see that's intangible. They are informed by human decision making. And that's really important. And I think uh, James uh, Brittle argues in the podcast that you need to expand the people making and writing these algorithms so that the past does not repeat itself and prior errors, such as um, the reliance on bad data, uh, expands not only to people writing the code, but actually will potentially change the fabric of the society. We can also look at accessibility in terms of technology, accessibility not only to technology, but also with technology. And we ran into this issue in curating 403 Forbidden as it was uh, a digital space. There is no physical location of this exhibit. And unlike curating a physical space, digital curation forces you to be very creative in terms of thinking of public programming, thinking of visitor interaction and participation, as well as accessibility. Just like physical exhibitions, though, accessibility is very much a real issue. So even though we think that, you know, it's more accessible because available on the web and anyone in the world can access it, there's still very nuanced issues that we have to look at. One example is the color and size of the text. Another is with regard to digital fluency. Is our website easy to navigate? There's a whole variety of issues. So although individuals have the opportunity to join an exhibition or public program from the comfort of their home, or if we're looking at a post-pandemic scenario from the library, not everyone has access to the internet or to devices that allow ease of connection into a digital space. This is popularly known as a digital divide that exists within society. It's an issue which is a major form of social and economic exclusion for many people. It can take many different forms, including access to internet connection, access to devices that can help one access the web, as well as certain software. It can also take the form of access to meaningful, high quality and culturally relevant content in different languages. It can mean access to uh, educators and teachers who are able to integrate digital tools into their modes of teaching effectively. And this is especially an issue during the pandemic as well as the knowledge and instruction on how to use the internet and digital technologies to help you find what you're looking for. If, if you're looking for how to get to the pharmacy that carries a certain prescription, you need to be able to understand how to uh, log on and uh, get the information you need. And although many of us, myself included, might take this for granted, being able to type into Google which pharmacy I want to go to, there's still that digital divide and digital fluency that not everyone is comfortable with. And I think this is really pertinent in terms of small businesses or small galleries also trying to adapt online, but having immense difficulty due to not maybe not having a certain level of digital fluency or um, knowing how to engage impactfully online, because it is very different from the physical world. Definitely, definitely. And these barriers also present themselves in ways that, you know, those of us who are able-bodied or seeing or hearing may not even realize. For example, we talk about um, developing websites, um, not having alt text in your images, heading tags in your text, and et cetera, may present barriers for people who use screen readers. And there's also other accessibility me measures to keep in mind for screen-based experiences, such as color contrast, the size of the text, the font used, which are things that you mentioned, Nama, and also not having flashing colors. 
In Ontario, there's actually a public website accessibility deadline for businesses with 50 or more employees. By June 1st, 2021, these websites have to meet level AA web accessibility requirements that are set by the web content accessibility guidelines. Otherwise, they could face a fine up to $50,000 for each day or part of a day on which they fail to comply. And it's a, for bigger corporation, it goes up to $100,000 a day. Accessibility for websites specifically, it's not only, you know, it's not only like the aesthetics changes, uh, another way of like creating a truly accessible webs uh, website is you can tag the, you know, HTML code in such a way that enables for greater readability if there's like another machine reading over it and stuff like that. But, you know, you, you kind of need that, you know, software knowledge and you're kind of dependent on having someone on your team who absolutely knows how to do these things. And even like, especially like maybe this is like more, you know, uh, available to bigger organizations who have the financing uh, to make that possible. But, you know, for smaller galleries, like, like, as, as Nama mentioned, like, it's, it's kind of, you know, a series of compromises that are made, but that contribute to the bigger problem of that is accessibility. Yeah. And, and in a pandemic, when you don't have another option, you have to adapt to the online. You can't put it off any longer. <laughs> yeah, you have to, you have to, like, you know, those, like, little things that you had no idea how to do all of a sudden, you know, I'm an expert. That's it for episode two. Make sure to check out the next one. 